Okay, so welcome to lecture nine in contract law. In this particular lecture, we're going to continue to focus on the rules in relation to consideration. So again, let's just very quickly get our bearings on this topic. So consideration is one of the conditions in the basic rule of contract law. It's one of the things that you have to have in place in order to have a legally binding contract. And consideration is one of the things that differentiates contractual agreements from other types of agreements. So, you know, offer and acceptance, even though they are somewhat formalized requirements in contract law for an agreement, they are elements that you might find in any agreement, whereas consideration is a feature of legally binding contracts only, really. And what is consideration? Well, consideration is something of value that's given or taken in exchange for something else of value, or to put it another way, it is the benefit and detriment that's incurred upon both sides of a contractual negotiation or agreement. So I agree to do some work for you, that's a detriment to me, but you agree to benefit me by paying me money for that. And you get the benefit of my work being done, and you suffer the detriment of losing the money in the payment to me. So, I mean, it's difficult to underemphasize how important consideration is to what the law understands as a contract. That said, in, in many real-world cases, consideration is straightforward enough insofar as most people provide a monetary consideration. The challenges tend to arise when we don't have a monetary consideration and we try to figure out whether a non-monetary consideration is sufficient in the eyes of the law. And we also looked at a couple of other complications in the previous lecture, such as the rule stating that consideration must move from the promisee. In a sense, this is a feature of, of rules in relation to the privity of contract and that third parties can't provide a consideration on your behalf for a benefit that accrues to you. You don't have any contractual rights if they do that. And also this notion that consideration must not be passed. In other words, you can't do something for somebody, then get them to promise to do something in return for you and have that be a binding legal agreement. You have to essentially agree everything in advance, although there are exceptions to that such as were revealed in the case of Lamplavy Braithwaite. And that's the case where the guy tries to get a pardon for his colleague who committed a murder. Okay, so today I want to move on to address what I think is probably the most important and also the trickiest aspect of the rules in relation to consideration, and that is the rule on, about consideration as it applies to the performance of pre-existing duties. So let me just briefly explain what I mean here. We all have duties. Some of us have you know, legal duties that apply as a result of our position in society. Some of us have legal duties that are imposed upon us under the terms of a contract. If we perform those duties, does that provide sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law? Are we doing something of sufficient benefit or detriment to create a legally binding contract? So let's go back to the example that I just outlined where I agreed to do some work for you. Let's say I agreed to do some work for you, you agreed to pay me, but for some reason we run into trouble. I get into financial difficulties, I'm lazy, I fall ill, whatever. And so I don't perform the duties that I had under the contractual agreement. You come to me, not very happy with this situation, and we reach another agreement saying, look, okay, I will agree to do what I promise to do if you pay me a bit more money, given that I'm in such difficult financial circumstances. 
The question that often arises in law is whether that second promise, to pay me more money to do what I had already promised to do, is in fact a legally binding agreement. So can I demand that you pay me the extra money? And the basic rule of thumb here is that you can't enforce a promise like that because you've already agreed to do something under the terms of a contract. That's your pre-existing contractual duty. And so promising to do the same thing, again, doesn't provide sufficient consideration for a new contractual agreement. It doesn't involve any additional benefit or detriment on your side of the thing. You're already obliged to do it. But the thing is, the scenario I just outlined is pretty common in the real world. In commercial practice, people do run into financial difficulties and they do renegotiate contracts all the time. And so this has given rise to a considerable amount of litigation and the legal position in relation to pre-existing duties and the sufficiency of consideration is quite complex and probably one of the least satisfactory from the perspective of consistency and logical certitude areas of contract law. So it's probably going to take a little bit of time to go through all the case law here. And this is also one of the areas of contract law that has generated some interesting, if not fully satisfying cases in recent years. But let's try and make a stab at it. All right. And for the purposes of making this area of law manageable, I'm going to divide up the case law in relation to consideration and pre-existing duties into three main subject areas, although I will emphasize at the outset that the division between these is somewhat artificial. So I'm going to look at different kinds of pre-existing legal duties and the rules that apply in relation to them. I'm going to start by looking at what I'm going to call public or role-related legal duties. They're probably the most straightforward set of cases. Then I'm going to look at pre-existing contractual duties, particularly the duty to perform some act for another person. And then I'm going to look at the duty to pay a debt, a pre-existing debt. And that's kind of similar to a contractual duty. It's, in a sense, the other side of a contractual promise, where one party promises to do some work for somebody, and the other party promises to pay them in return. So those last two categories do have to be looked at together, but just for the purposes of dividing up the material here, I am separating them out for the time being. So let's start by looking at that first set of cases, cases involving public or rule-related legal duties. So this is going to make most sense if we just look at a case. And the classic case on this point is a case called Collins v. Godfrey, or Godfrey. It's an 1831 English case, so an old case, in which a police officer is promised a sum of money by a defendant to give evidence on his behalf at trial. Now, this particular police officer had already been subpoenaed to give evidence at trial. Therefore, prior to the agreement he reached with the defendant, he had a pre-existing legal duty to give evidence at trial. So when he tried to enforce the promise that he, the contract that he had with the defendant, he could not enforce it because all he was promising to do was to perform a pre-existing legal duty and performing a pre-existing legal duty like that is not deemed to be sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law. So that's a straightforward enough case, and you can apply that principle more generally. So anyone who has some kind of pre-existing legal duty cannot use the performance of that pre-existing duty to form a new binding contract. That said, there are complications here, so it's possible that exceeding 
a pre-existing duty does suffice for consideration. So there's a case on this point called Glassbrook Brothers versus Glamorgan County Council. It's a 1925 English case. The facts are that there was a miners' strike, and the owner of the mine was afraid of what would happen to workers who crossed picket lines. So he asked the police to provide extra protection for his workers, and he promised to pay for this extra protection. After the strike, he refused to pay, arguing that the police, as public servants, were already legally obliged to provide protection of this sort. But the court rejected his argument and held that there was sufficient consideration here because the police were providing additional protection above and beyond what they would ordinarily be legally obliged to provide. So this seems to suggest if you're going above and beyond the call of duty, you are providing sufficient consideration. Now, there is a slight complication to all of this, because in the middle part of the 20th century, Lord Justice Denning, in a pair of cases, suggested that this approach to analysing the doctrine of consideration should be abandoned. In fact, Denning wasn't really a fan of the doctrine of consideration at all. He thought that, in a sense, any agreement that was intended to be legally binding between the parties should be legally binding, irrespective of whether sufficient consideration was provided. And his reasoning in this pair of cases is worth looking at because it highlights some of the critiques that a lot of people have of the doctrine of consideration. And so I just want to go through them briefly, although as we'll see, Denning's attempt to reform this area of law wasn't ultimately successful. So one of the cases we actually mentioned already, so this is the case of Ward versus Byam. It's a 1956 English case. The facts were given previously, so it's a woman who gives birth to a child out of wedlock and enters into an agreement with the father that she will look after the child and keep the child happy, provided that the father pays them a sum of one pound per week. The father does so for a period of time, but then stops making payments after the mother gets married to another man, and she tries to enforce the agreement. So all three judges in the English Court of Appeal reached the same conclusion on this case, which is that the agreement should be enforced. Two of them, as mentioned in the previous lecture, reached that conclusion on the basis that what the wife had promised to do here was going above and beyond her pre-existing legal duty. So she had an existing legal duty to provide care for her child, but making sure that the child was well cared for and happy was going above and beyond the call of pre-existing legal duty. So there was sufficient consideration for this agreement. Lord Denning had a different view, and I think it's just worth quoting from his judgment on this point. So here I'm quoting from his judgment. He says, I approach the case, therefore, on the footing that in looking after the child, the mother is only doing what she is legally bound to do. Even so, I think there is sufficient consideration. I have always thought that a promise to perform an existing duty or the actual performance of it, should be regarded as good consideration, because it is a benefit to the person to whom it is given. Take this very case. It is as much a benefit for the father to have the child looked after by the mother as by a neighbour. So what he's saying here in a sense is that all that matters is that the child is looked after by somebody. The fact that the mother promised to do it is and should be deemed sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law, even if we think that she has a pre-existing duty to do so. And he adopted a very similar approach in a subsequent case, a case called Williams v. Williams, a 1957 decision. 
And the facts of this case are that there was an agreement reached between a wife and her husband, whom she had deserted, whereby he agreed to pay her support money, provided that, and I apologize here in advance because the facts of this agreement are are a product of the social moral beliefs of the time. So the agreement was that the wife would look after herself and lead a chaste life, would not pledge the husband's credit in any businesses, so she wouldn't purchase goods on the husband's credit, and she did not institute legal proceedings against him demanding any formal maintenance payments, which she would be entitled to under separation and divorce laws. So obviously you have a breakdown of a marriage here, wife deserts the husband, she wants a certain sum of money to be paid to her, or he agrees to pay to her support money, provided she does three things. Look after herself, lead a chaste life. She doesn't use his name to purchase goods or services on credit, and she doesn't bring any legal case against him demanding maintenance. Now, the husband stopped paying her the money, and she brought a case trying to enforce their agreement. Now, what's interesting in the judgment is that Lord Justice Denning thinks that most of the conditions here couldn't provide sufficient consideration, so not pledging the credit and not instituting legal proceedings, that's not sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law. But he did focus on this initial promise to look after herself and lead a chaste life, and he says the following about that. He says, In promising to maintain herself whilst she was in desertion, the wife was only promising to do that which she was already bound to do. Nevertheless, a promise to perform an existing duty is, I think, sufficient consideration to support a promise, so long as there is nothing in the transaction which is contrary to the public interest. So again, he's pushing this line that a promise to perform an existing duty should be deemed sufficient consideration, provided you know it's made in good faith, it doesn't contravene any other legal rules or policy considerations, and the promise is made in the context of a negotiation or an agreement where there was clearly an intention to create some kind of legally binding arrangement. Nevertheless, the other judges disagreed in this particular case, and they held that actually the promise to suspend her right to seek maintenance proceedings and also not to pledge the husband's credit was sufficient consideration. So Lord Denning's approach never really caught on here in these cases about the pre-existing legal duty. But as we shall see in a moment, some of the more modern case law you could argue is running with or taking up Lord Denning's point of view and suggesting that a promise to perform a pre-existing legal duty where it is of benefit to the other party to whom the promise is made, should be deemed to be sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law. Now, before I move on from this first set of cases involving pre-existing public or role-related legal duties, and bear in mind all the cases we've discussed so far involve that, it's the police performing their duties, it's mothers performing their duties. I want to discuss one Irish case, which touches upon or deals with this topic to some extent, although not, again, in a complete way or in as complete a way as any of the English authorities. And that's the case of McHugh versus Kildare County Council, which is a 2009 Irish Supreme Court decision. So the facts of this case is that the plaintiff, McHugh, owned some land that he thought was going to be rezoned or could be rezoned for industrial purposes. So it could be sold to industrial interests. So he entered into an agreement with the Kildare County Council stating that if they rezoned the land for industrial purposes, 
he would agree to transfer 20% of it to them, and he could then sell on the rest of the land at a considerable profit to himself. So the county council did subsequently rezone the land for industrial purposes, and they sought to enforce this promise that he would give them 20% of it. But McHugh then rejected this on the grounds that the county council had a public legal duty to consider any rezoning applications irrespective of a promise entered into with a private landowner. Now, two issues arose during the trial for this case. One was whether the contract entered into between McHugh and the Kildare County Council, or the alleged contract, I should say, was valid under a particular act of the Oireachtas, so the 1963 Local Government Planning and Development Act, Section 38, questioned whether contracts of this sort are valid. And also the second issue that arose was, did the council provide sufficient consideration for this agreement, given McHugh's point that they were legally obliged to consider rezoning applications? Now, there was a little bit of disagreement in relation to this point in the judgments. So in the High Court, initially, Justice Gilligan actually approved of Lord Denning's approach in Ward v. Byam, and said that there was sufficient consideration here and that the promise to perform a pre-existing legal duty should provide sufficient consideration. When this case was then appealed to the Supreme Court in Ireland, Justice Hardiman rejected this approach. And also the court did a classic thing, which we'll actually encounter later on when we look at another recent case about consideration, where they decided that it wasn't necessary to decide the consideration issue in this case, because when they looked at the statute, the 1963 Act, they felt that it did not authorize contracts of this sort between the county council and a private landowner for the transfer of land prior to rezoning. So in a sense, then, the rejection of the point about the validity of the consideration was obiter in this case. It wasn't legally binding. But nevertheless, it's an interesting Irish case insofar as it flirts with the Denning approach in Ward v. Byam. Okay, then let's move on from that first set of cases involving pre-existing legal duties to the second set of cases, which I'm calling cases where somebody promises to perform a pre-existing contractual duty. And what I mean with these cases specifically is where somebody has promised to do something, to perform some set of actions, to do some kind of work for somebody in return for payment. So can the promise to do that work be sufficient consideration during some kind of renegotiation or attempted renegotiation process. So this is the kind of scenario that's probably given rise to the most case law in practice. It's not so much the performance of pre-existing public duties that tends to give rise to problems. It's really this scenario where somebody already has a contract and they attempt to secure additional monies in return for doing what they had already promised to do. And there's some very famous cases on this point. And the first case I'm going to discuss it's an old English authority called Stilk v. Myrick, which is an 1809 decision. And this decision is complicated insofar as back in 1809, the reports of legal judgments weren't as robust and accurate as modern reports are. And so there's actually two different case reports of this case, and that has led to some confusion as to exactly what was decided. But here's the kind of standard reading of what happened in this case. Stilk was a sailor who was part of a crew sailing a boat from the Baltic back to England. 
or sorry, sailing from England to the Baltic and back. And the crew on board this ship or boat was consisted of 11 people, and they all pro- agreed to do the work to sail the boat in return for £5 per month payment. When the boat made its outward journey to the Baltic and arrived at its destination, two members of the crew, 11 people in the crew, two of them deserted. So there's only nine left. And the remaining crew demanded extra money from the ship's captain, or boat's captain, to sail back to England. Specifically, they demanded that the wages of the two people who had deserted should be divided amongst the remaining nine crew members. And the captain agreed. So when they arrived back in London, the captain then refused to pay the additional monies, and Stilk sued. So Stilk's argument is that the agreement reached in the, uh, once they had arrived at their destination on the outward leg of the journey, there was sufficient consideration provided for that. The court found against Stilk, holding that all Stilk was doing and all the other members of the crew that didn't desert were doing was just fulfilling their pre-existing contractual duties, and that couldn't provide sufficient consideration for a legally binding contract. So the captain was entitled not to pay the money. And one of the typical arguments in this case, or in the interpretation of this case, is that there is a policy rationale underlying this decision, which is that you want to create a set of legal rules that prevents people from trying to exploit or coerce others into making promises to pay additional money when they are in difficult circumstances. So the idea here is that the court was sympathetic to the captain. He was in a difficult state of affairs, given that some of his crew had abandoned ship. He needed to get the boat back to England, and he couldn't do that without the compliance of the remaining crew. And so he was in a vulnerable position, perhaps, you could argue. And so the remaining crew were deemed to have exploited that vulnerability. And also, I should probably mention here a kind of broader economic and cultural context for this decision, which is that shipping was very important in England at the time. It was probably the key to English dominance of the world throughout the 1800s was the robust nature of their shipping and merchant trade in addition to their navy. And so there are actually a lot of foundational cases in contract law that involve shipping of some sort. And you could view the decision in this case as part of an effort to ensure the continued good health of those shipping networks. Now, that's just my kind of quick gloss or reading of the historical circumstances of the case, and you can accept or reject that as you see fit. Now, a similar case arose in Ireland in much later date. So there's Kenny and others versus Unpost, a 1988 Irish decision. And the facts of this case are that the plaintiffs were employed as mail sorters at the post office, And they, as mail sorters, they frequently worked overtime shifts from 8 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. in the evening to sort the mail for the following day's post. So in 1969, about nearly 20 years before this case was decided, one of the managers in On Post suggested that there should be a regular 15-minute break time introduced for these workers in order to replace what had been a more haphazard system of breaks. So people just taking breaks somewhat willy-nilly, and that was preventing the work from getting done, so they wanted a regular schedule of 15-minute breaks. This was agreed to by the workers and the unions at the time. 
Then, fast forward 14 years, a new manager is employed in Onpost, and he discontinues this arrangement, actually rejecting the idea of breaks entirely. And the workers then sued, arguing that the agreement they had reached in 1969 with the previous manager meant that they were legally entitled under their contract to a 15-minute break. So they brought this case, and their case was rejected. And one of the stated grounds for rejecting their case was that in negotiating for this 15-minute break, they provided no new consideration under their employment contracts. They were contractually obliged to do the work that they were doing anyway, and so they didn't give the company on post anything for this 15-minute break. Now, those two cases might make it seem like the legal position in relation to the performance of pre-existing contractual duties is straightforward, but unfortunately it isn't. And there are some cases where courts have been willing to accept the modification to existing contracts and accept them as providing sufficient consideration. So let me just discuss two cases on this point in this lecture, and then we're going to discuss more in the next lecture. So the first case I want to discuss is a case called Hartley v. Ponsonby, which is an 1857 English case. And the facts of this case are very similar to the Stilk v. Myrick case. So it involves a crew of a ship renegotiating a payment contract with their captain. So what happened in this instance is that when the ship made its outward journey, 17 members of a 36-person crew abandoned the ship. So nearly, but not quite, half of the crew abandoned and the remaining sailors were all offered additional money if they completed the return voyage safely. So when they got back to England, the captain of the ship refused to pay them the additional money that he had agreed to pay them. They brought a case, and the court in this instance, distinguishing this case from Stilk v. Myrick, held that there was sufficient consideration provided to enforce this new agreement to pay more money. So what was the crucial difference in, between the Stilk v. Myrick and Hartley v. Ponsonby? Well, the argument is that in Hartley v. Ponsonby, nearly half the crew abandoned ship. So that meant that the remaining crew members must have been doing something more than their previous contractually obliged duties. So they were promising to do more. They were exceeding their pre-existing contractual duties, and this amounted to new sufficient consideration to enforce that promise. And that decision, you could argue, is consistent with the previous case that we looked at of Glassbrook Brothers versus Glamorgan County Council involving the police and the miners' strike. But then we have to consider a later case, a case called Williams v. Roffey Brothers. And this is actually probably the case that is most widely discussed and creates most difficulties when it comes to this area of contract law. So let's run through the facts of the case first and then look at the judgment and reasoning in it. So the facts are as follows. Roffey Brothers, the defendants in this case, were contracted to refurbish 27 apartments, flats, in an area called Shepherd's Bush in London. They subcontracted some of their refurbishment works to Williams, the plaintiffs, who ran a carpentry business, and they agreed to pay Williams as subcontractors £20,000 for this work. So Williams completed a portion of the work, was paid 16200 and then ran into some financial difficulties. So there were two stated reasons for these financial difficulties. One was that Williams had an incompetent management style, so it was partly his own fault. 
And second, that the original contractual price was too low. So Williams wasn't getting enough money for the work that he was doing. Now, this was creating delays with the completion of the refurbishment works, and this created problems for Roffey Brothers as the main contractors for those refurbishment works. Specifically, the contract that they had entered into for refurbishment meant that they would be liable under a penalty clause for a late delivery or completion of the refurbishment works. So it was in their interest to get these refurbishment works completed as quickly as possible. So given Williams's financial difficulties, they agreed to pay him extra money. They agreed to pay him £575 extra for each flat that he finished his refurbishment works on. The total value of this would have been about £10,000 at the time. And they essentially agreed to pay him as well on a per-flat basis, so he didn't have to wait till the end to get all the money. He would get the money as he completed the work, and this would help to allay or address some of his financial problems. So he did some of this work, but then eventually ran into more problems and walked off the site. So Roffey Brothers had to hire somebody else to finish the work. The work ended up being late, and they incurred a penalty under the main contract. So in a sense, this new deal reached with Williams was of no ultimate benefit to Roffey Brothers. But Williams did complete work on eight flats, and he claimed payment for that work. And the total payment for that work was about £4,500. Roffey Brothers rejected this and argued against him on the grounds that the second agreement, the agreement to pay the 575 additional per flat, was not enforceable because Williams had provided no fresh consideration for this. He was just doing what he was already legally obliged to do. So, you know, if you were applying the pre-existing authorities or previous authorities to this, so the cases like Stilk v. Myrick and Hartley v. Ponsonby, you would have to say that, well, it doesn't look like Williams has a good case here. He's just doing what he already promised to do and doesn't seem like he's doing anything additional to what he already promised to do. Nevertheless, In the English Court of Appeal, three judges all agreed that Williams did provide sufficient consideration and that this second deal to pay extra money for the work completed could be a legally binding contract. And the argument was that in reaching this second agreement, Williams provided a practical benefit, at least in principle, if not in practice, to Roffey Brothers. And Lord Justice Glidewell, in probably the most cited judgment in this case, stated that the rule should, uh, that should apply to scenarios like this was as follows. The present state of the law on this subject, so the performance of pre-existing contractual duties, can be expressed in the following proposition. If A has entered into a contract with B to do work for or to supply goods or services to B in return for payment by B, and at some stage before A has completely performed his obligations under the contract, B has reason to doubt whether A will or will be able to complete his side of the bargain, and B thereupon promises A an additional payment in return for A's promise to perform his contractual obligations on time, and as a result of giving this promise, B obtains a practice in benefit, or sorry, obtains in practice a benefit or obviates a disbenefit, and B's promise is not given as the result of economic duress or fraud, then there will be a legally binding contract. 
So it's a somewhat complex and abstract formulation of the principle that should apply here, but the gist of what Glidewell is saying is that a promise to perform a pre-existing legal duty, if it provides a practical benefit to the other party and is not secured or obtained as the result of fraud or duress, should be legally binding. So that looks, on the face of it, like an endorsement of Lord Justice Denning's approach in War v. Byam. But the decision in this case led to a lot of confusion, which actually persists to this day. And there's a number of questions that you have to ask about it. Number one, you know, what is a practical benefit to one side? What does that mean? How does this affect the status of previous case law, like Stilk v. Myrick, and also another case that we will look at in the next lecture called Folks v. Beer? And also, are there other kind of legal principles that might address the scenario that arises in this case? In particular, could the rule on promissory estoppel cover cases like this? Now, we haven't looked at the rule on promissory estoppel yet, although we are going to do so, do so very soon. But the important point that I want to make here is that Williams v. Rafi seems like it, on the face of it, overturns a lot of the previous case law and adopts quite a different approach to the rule on consideration and pre-existing duties than was before then expected to be the case. And it's worth noting that quite a number of English cases have questioned the validity of the verdict of Williams v. Rafi. Now, I'll mention more of them in the next lecture, but one example of this is a case called Trafigura in 2004, which is an English High Court decision where Justice Coleman, in his verdict, said that, but for the fact that Williams v. Rafi was a decision of the Court of Appeal, I would not have followed it. That decision is inconsistent with the long-standing rule that consideration, being the price of the promise sued upon, must move from the promisee. So there is, in a sense, judicial discord in relation to the validity of the Williams v. Rafi judgment, and it hasn't ever been explicitly followed in an Irish court. So we're going to have to leave ourselves with that discord at the end of this particular lecture. And in the next lecture, I'm going to look at additional cases on consideration and pre-existing duty and see whether some more recent case law has cleared up any of the confusion in relation to Williams v. Rafi. And I'll give you a bit of a teaser in advance. We'll learn that it hasn't really cleared up the confusion.